Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. On Sunday, I visited a prayer vigil for four of the Korean American victims, and it was held in front of Gold Spa. Everyone there were holding chrysanthemums, which in Korea are called kukwakgot. And these are the national mourning flowers of Korea that you usually don't see in the U.S. And for me, it hit close to home because I'm Korean myself, and it really hit the point that people from my own community had been murdered. People around the Atlanta area held vigils over the weekend. It was a way to remember eight people killed in last week's shootings. Some churches also spent Sunday services in remembrance of the victims, six of whom were women of Asian descent. In Georgia and across the country, people are marching in support of Asian Americans after the murders of six Asian women at three different locations in the Atlanta metro area. This is a moment of awakening for a number of Asian American communities to not just vote and participate in in local politics, but to fully immerse themselves in this and really get involved and be vocal. I think it's important to still talk about the circumstances of where the women were working and really remembering these women as not only women, as Asian Americans, but also as workers as well. I'm tired of seeing my elders on the floor. I'm tired of seeing them attacked. I'm tired of walking in the streets and being told the virus, of being sexually assaulted and being Chinese. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, my name is Katherine Kim. I mostly report a lot about API issues at Politico. And I'm Maya King. I am a politics reporter covering the intersection of race and politics. Catherine Kim and Maya King on 48 hours of grief and calls for justice in Atlanta. Maya, tell me what you saw in Atlanta over the weekend. On Saturday, I attended a Stop Asian Hate rally. And I have this image in my head now of this multiracial coalition of of leaders in Georgia who were standing up all together um, in this park across the street in the shadow of the Georgia State Capitol, all condemning uh, these hate crimes and this mass shooting. Asian American children! on elders, on us. That is unacceptable. It was this collective call and commitment, really, to improve conditions, not just in Georgia, which has very quickly become the center of the political universe in many ways, but also on a national level. No justice! No peace! No justice! No peace! No justice! No peace! One person I spoke with was Sam Park, who is a representative in the Georgia State House. His district is one of the second most populous in the state, Mm -hmm. and it has the largest number of Asian Americans. And yet 
in 2017 when he was elected, he was the first ever Asian American Democrat um, to hold this office. And so his role in in politics in Georgia right now is very emblematic of the changing demographics and the changing mindset, and also just the willingness to become more politically active among Asian American communities who really wish to see more of their own represented in politics. So it's really been quite an interesting experience here in Georgia, just understanding uh, the ways that this demographic has sought in the wake of tragedy to really affect political change and turn their grief into political power. So y'all will repeat after me. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. It is our duty to win. We must protect one another. We must protect one another. We must love each other. We, we must, must love each other. So, Catherine, the following day after this rally that Maya attended, you went to a prayer service at Gold Spa. This is where four of the victims in the shooting were killed. Can you describe for me what it was like there where just a week ago this tragedy unfolded? Yeah, so the event I went to was hosted by a group of Korean pastors in the community who thought that now was a time to speak out against Asian American hate, which is uncharacteristic. Um, Just if you know the history of Korean American churches and just the culture of them, they've usually been silent about issues like this. They try to keep like the secular and the spiritual separate. Mm -hmm. But these pastors bonded together and thought enough is enough and we need to speak up. And so... This was an event hosted by them. It was kind of a by Koreans, for Koreans event. Um, A pastor came out early on kind of telling all the media people that, hey, this is all going to be in Korean. Use your imagination. Uh, We're here for the community. Uh Really, it wasn't just a vigil. Um, I talked to one of the pastors, um, Pastor Han Byung-chul, and he was also talking about how this was an opportunity for these pastors to reach out to other Asian Americans, other Korean Americans, and talk about how the community really needs to start talking about the model minority myth, the hate that people face, and the racism that um, the community has historically faced, but haven't been as actively defensive about it. Mm. And so I think what you can really walk away from this event was just hearing that so many people that had been silent until now, this shooting really struck a chord with them. And you really see these new groups of people starting to talk out, starting to organize. And you see this change in culture within Asian Americans. And it's a big deal that these pastors are the ones leading that because 60% of Korean Americans are Christian. Um, religion plays a huge role in immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the people at the center of these religious institutions are leading this change means that they really have a huge influence and could really signal a difference this time. Mm-hmm. At the same time as these calls for action, there's also grief, grieving in the aftermath of shootings that have sparked national coverage, that have led to national conversations about race and hate crimes and violence against Asians and Asian Americans. But being at this service in the city at the center of all of this, 
How are you seeing people handle this flood of emotion and and how have you been handling it personally? It's not easy. I think definitely with a lot of Asian Americans, myself included, um, you kind of benefit from this idea that it kind of goes back to the model minority myth where you're safe from this and it's easy to like believe that false sense of security. And then when events like this happen, you realize you're as alienated from kind of safety as every other minority in the U.S. So it's hard. And like any other person of color in the media industry, it's hard because you realize that you're covering an event that it affects your entire community and it's unfair. Um, It's really tragic and it's hard. (laughs) It's hard to kind of find meaning in this. Like my job as a journalist is to find meaning in all this. What does this mean? Why did this happen? Uh But a lot of this, sometimes you just sit down and you're like, this is insane. Like this shouldn't have happened. And so I think the hardest part for both me and organizers of the community is just like trying to make meaning out of this. Maya, where do you think this goes from here? Because you've covered the intersection of policy and politics and race and identity for some time now, and also particularly in Georgia and in Atlanta with the runoff elections in in January, a city that's changing demographics, particularly with Black and Asian communities, have had a big effect on politics. I'm curious what the activists and political leaders you've reported on say is next. Well, I think perhaps the most powerful result of this that we are certainly on track to bear witness to is this intersectional interracial organizing. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's nothing new in this country. That's nothing new in Atlanta, especially in Georgia, given the groundwork um, that organizers like Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown and others have laid uh, to turn out first time and new voters. However, um, as Catherine pointed out, there is this new sense of urgency among Asian Americans in Georgia right now, where they're seeing not only this tragedy, but this need for immediate and wide-ranging policy to to meet this moment to address this issue of hate crimes and discrimination against Asian American communities. And so that really fits right in uh, with the activist landscape that exists and is very strong here in Atlanta and here in Georgia. And looking ahead to 2022, uh, there will be a gubernatorial election. Obviously, there will be a Democrat on the ticket. And so a number of organizers and folks who were at the rally on Saturday who I spoke to said that they plan to band together and make sure that members of their community are engaged and registered and ready to support Democrats. And we also can't forget, of course, that Raphael Warnock, who was just elected in the special election in January, will be running again in 2022. uh, for a full Senate term. And that's a huge get for Democrats to make sure that their hold on on politics here in Georgia is not just for the moment and that these demographic shifts aren't just sort of a blip in um, the support that they've enjoyed and started to really make inroads in the Deep South, that it's something that lasts. What that's going to require is this level of engagement, not just from Black voters, a group that I've reported on rather extensively in their um, involvement with Democrats politics, but Latino voters who have also gotten involved in mass. And now um, this large, ever-growing and extremely enthusiastic 
block of Asian American voters, and that umbrella uh, is extremely large. So when we say Asian American, it's this huge. I mean, we're talking about a continent, and so that's. I mean, almost every individual country in East and Southern Asia is represented in a really big way here in Georgia, and all of them are really feeling the repercussions of this shooting against one of their own, one a member of their community, um, their continental community, and then also understanding that this heightened platform can come with a significant amount of political capital, and that's something they're looking to really take advantage of in this time. Maya King, Catherine Kim, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you. Also today, President Biden is tapping Lena Khan, a prominent tech industry critic, to join the Federal Trade Commission. The move marks a major win for progressive Democrats who have criticized the agency for not aggressively pursuing major Silicon Valley platforms on antitrust and privacy issues. Khan will be one of three Democratic commissioners at the agency, which oversees privacy, data security, and some antitrust enforcement, at a time when the FTC has faced sharp blowback for not doing enough to police major tech firms like Google and Facebook over their privacy practices and past mergers. And the U.S. and its allies in Canada, Britain, and the European Union are announcing new sanctions on several Chinese officials alleged to have links to what U.S. officials say is a genocidal campaign against Uyghur Muslims. The International Coordinated Sanctions, which were first reported by Politico, drew condemnation and some immediate retaliatory sanctions from Beijing. It's hard to say exactly how much financial damage the new sanctions will do, But given the coordination with Europe, Britain, and Canada, they pack a symbolic punch and offer a glimpse into the growing divide between China and the United States and its transatlantic allies, which, like Washington, are increasingly wary of China's global ambitions and internal repression. Subscribe to Politico Dispatch wherever you get your podcasts. And to stay up on our latest coverage of the intersection of politics, race, and identity, be sure to sign up for the Recast newsletter. You can find that at politico.com newsletters. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.